I think there's something to be said about like the intersection of Detroit itself and how it shapes the the people that grow up there and and live there. And what are some of the things that we do in Detroit that do not happen in Atlanta, do not happen in D.C., do not happen in Harlem Mm -hmm. or even in West Hollywood? Hi, I'm Brittany, and this is For Colored Nerds, the weekly show where we peel back the layers of Black culture we rarely discuss in mixed company. This week, I got to chat with author, journalist, and proud Detroit native Aaron Foley about his new novel, Boys Come First. Boys Come First follows three Black gay men living in Detroit, dealing with life, love, friendship, and the ever-changing city around them. It's sexy, funny, heartwarming, everything you could want in a summer read. But most importantly, it's a love letter to one of the Blackest cities in the country, Detroit. All that and more right after this quick break. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Just a heads up, you may hear a bit of background noise in this episode, but you should be able to hear everything that Aaron and I are saying. We live and record in New York City, and that's just sometimes what happens. So I sincerely hope you enjoy today's episode. It is a great one. Aaron, welcome to For Colored Nerds. I'm so happy you're here. Thanks for having me. I love you guys. I'm so happy to be here. So we're here to talk about your new book. Not your first book, but it is your first novel, Boys Come First. So for people who haven't read the book, give us like a two-sentence explanation of what Boys Come First is about. It's about three gay Black men in Detroit and all of their messiness. They've got relationship problems. They've got problems with the city that they're in. They have problems with their job. They have problems amongst themselves as friends. There's a lot of queer media out right now, you know, Pride Month and all of that and all these movies and all these TV shows. But this is a book that kind of looks very specifically through a Black gay lens and also very specifically through a Detroit lens. So combining those two is something I tried to do. So to kind of get into the book a little bit, it focuses on three friends, Remy, Dominic, and Troy. And each character is really carefully drawn by you. They all feel like real people, but they also represent completely different points of view. Dominic is the first person that we meet. Dominic is like the citified, heartbroken professional. He's newly back from New York City. He's living with his mom in Detroit. And Remy is like, the unabashed striver, who's like a realtor. He sees opportunity in gentrification, but he also has like deep in his heart a desire just to like make things better in the city. I appreciated all of the different like moments where you brought up things that Remy would wear, (laughs) like (laughs) Cartier glasses and, you know, a fur bomber jacket that he keeps in Dietrich furs and storage, like my mom. Real Detroit stuff. (laughs) Real Detroit stuff. (laughs) And Troy is biracial. He's Black and South Asian. And he's like a social justice-minded teacher. 
comes from money, but is also from the city and really wants to dedicate his life to investing in young people and, and like the future of Detroit. So you have these three really vividly depicted characters. It makes me wonder, they're all so different, which one is closest to you? And how did you use each of them to communicate different aspects of your own personality and point of view? There's a little bit of me, but there's also like a little bit of, of my friends, the people I grew up around. I was kind of going through that like Terry McMillan aspect of how, how she approaches characters. Like she just looks around mm-hmm. her and stuff like that. But it's something that I think a lot of people in Detroit go through in terms of having that struggle back and forth with like you've seen how Detroit has been for so long. Like there are abandoned neighborhoods, there are streets that are torn up and there are storefronts where there stores and restaurants used to be. And then you do have a character like Remy. I think I'm kind of the closest to that one where it's just like, Hmm, I love Detroit so much. And I want to see like new things where these, like, I know there's this capability of putting stuff here, but I don't want it to, like, push out the people that I love. I don't want it to, like, raise the rents. I want it to be equitable to anyone. But as cities go, like, how do you reconcile that? You know, how do you bring in stuff and make it accessible and equitable to everyone? You know, but you can't do it cheap. It has to come at a cost. So I'm kind of closer to Remy in that aspect. I'm closer to Dominic, too, because of the dating part, of the relationship part. Back home in Detroit, and I think a lot of cities, is like different gay men from other places that aren't New York, Atlanta, or San Francisco <laughs> um, yeah. uh, kind of reach out and be like, oh yeah, the, the pool is very shallow here. You know, you love Detroit. I love all these, uh, all, all this blackness in Detroit, right? But like for mm-hmm. gay dating and specifically in the city, it can be tough because it's just like you do go into a bar and you're just like, oh, I've been on a date with you. I tried you, didn't work out. That does happen sometimes. So, mm-hmm. and then with Troy, like, I, you know, I was trying to do kind of that like gay boy struggling with his father type of thing. We, we all kind of have a little bit of that. But I didn't want to make it like, you know, his father's rejecting him because he's gay. I think his father's got some issues with his son, which I see a lot in Detroit because our parents and grandparents do want better for us, right? Because like, Mm -hmm. there's that whole like, automotive industry, like, you know, our our grandparents and great grandparents worked on the line so that they could provide better for our kids to go to college and stuff like that. That's something I can relate to. I know a lot of my friends can relate to. So when they do go on a different path where it's just like, oh, I'm going to do something that's a little bit more modest, but still good for the community, like be a teacher. I had a little bit of that with uh, some of my relatives um, when I decided to become a journalist and not like become an engineer like they made every Black kid in the 90s growing up trying to become. <laughs> so, yeah, so the, there's a little bit of me, me and everyone, but like there's also just like a little bit of like, I think a lot of folks our age, I guess. I was so glad that each of the characters was so different from each other and beyond even just the three main characters, Remy, Dominic, and Troy. The world of Boys Come First features such a diverse group of Black gay men, professional, blue-collar, multiracial, hopeless romantics, looking to hook up, even like a little hotep in there too. Yeah. Um, (laughs) What was the motivation behind depicting so many different kinds of Black gay men? That's what comes with growing up and living in a place like Detroit where, you know, you got to understand, you know, it's the blackest city in the United States. There's like per capita, like more than like a lot of other places. So you do see a lot of different kinds. I knew these types of like hardworking, getting your hands dirty type of gay men growing up. 
they've always just been in front of us because like, you know, they are working in the plants. They are doing the types of things that stereotypically aren't always thought of. You know, gay men are always thought of as doing like the more like creative arts and stuff like that. And like, oh, I'm too good for this. I'm too good for this. Like, no, mm-hmm. not, not not where I'm from. Like, so, and then, <laughs> and then you do kind of have that like little hotep character in there where it's, I, I, I do see some, not all, gay black men particularly who kind of, I don't want to say they're like stuck in the closet, right? But like they do kind of have two things pulling at them where it's just like, oh, I want to be out and live my life as a gay man, but I want to be down for the cause, down for the the people and and all of Mm -hmm. that. And then they do kind of get, you know, swept up in a certain kind of mentality that's very patriarchal, very heteronormative, where it's just like, you know, the, the black man, gay or straight, is at the top of the chain. But there's that masculinity part of it that they have. And so it's that back and forth where it's just like, I'm a black man, I'm supposed to be head of the household, but I also got all this going on at the same time. So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's real. That's real. I mean, I, I try to sympathize with with some of those guys, but, you know. Yeah, it really felt like contradictions like that were handled really sensitively in the book. Like you had almost like a loving eye for each of the characters, despite some of their more, I guess, contradictory qualities or things that that weren't necessarily so cut and dry. One of the things I loved about this book, and I'm glad you brought up Terry McMillan earlier, is it reminded me of like that Black literary fiction from the 90s. There was this really specific filled out world that did remind me of like some of my favorite Terry McMillan or B.B. Moore Campbell or Elin Harris books. You're a queer journalist. You got credits. Like you have credits, you have clips. You and I have each had the pleasure of working for the city of Detroit, like local (laughs) government. You know, you've written nonfiction books, but this is your first novel. And it really took me back to like when Black literary fiction was like at its height in the 90s and early 2000s. And that style of writing is so different than what you typically do. What made you decide to write a novel and also write this book specifically? Um, I mean, I was kind of missing that style. So like in Detroit, we had Shrine of the Black Madonna, like this yes, that bookstore. It's a, it's a Black-owned bookstore. It's still there. But like my mom yep. lived in that. When I say she lived in that bookstore <laughs> and, and brought me with her. And I, and I love books too. Like I, 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 loved, I loved it. But, you know, she, I would always get the kids books and she would always get the adult ones. And though that's what was on our shelves growing up was like, you know, like a Your Blues, like came ain't like mine by be more Campbell and like everything wait yes. and exhale disappearing acts yes and this too shall pass and um by Elin Harris and all, all those types of things I liked those worlds I liked those books because um it was contemporary African-American life but also just kind of introducing multiple characters all at once I think when we look at like the great literature canon or you know both black and non-black authors tend to follow like one person, right? Like one person's Mm. journey or one or two people's intersecting paths or or something like that. Whereas I think a lot of contemporary Black authors were trying to have multiple characters because you have multiple points of view. A lot of these authors Mm -hmm. did come from places like Detroit where you just saw like all these fascinating like people in real life. It's just like, yeah, black people are not a monolith, right? So like, so like, um, <laughs> um, but you know, just kind of taking a little bit of that that approach in terms of like, there are multiple. Just because we all may look the same and and or whatever, it doesn't mean we're all necessarily on the same path. They diverge sometimes, and I think a lot of authors were going for that in that time period. 
why I decided to do it was because like kind of the same thing where it's just like, there are not a lot of books centering black characters about Detroit, despite the fact there are black authors writing. There's like Angela Flournoy and uh, Gina mm-hmm. Lisa Esther and, and, and folks like those who are, you know, writing actively about the city. But when you go into a bookstore, there's a lot of white authors and a lot of like uh, novels kind of featuring <laughs> white characters. And it's always kind of like centering their journey in this mostly black city. Right. And so I'm looking around, I'm trying to explain, like I spent a lot of years in journalism and nonfiction trying to explain how Detroit is and people still don't get it sometimes. So it's just like, okay, let me try it this way. Uh, like if it, I've been telling y'all like this is the way it is. Industry-wise, it's hard for a lot of Black writers or journalists or both to kind of rise to a level where they can have that free voice. I just wanted to kind of pay homage to the authors that I was exposed to growing up, but also just tell a, a story about my hometown. The core of this story is friendship. Like the book had a lot of sex, and it definitely had a romantic focus, but it was really a love story about friends. Why did you choose to focus on the friendship as like the central relationship for the book? When it comes to queer fiction, you don't always see that. There's a lot of romance and there's a lot of like, you know, enemies to lovers, that that type of thing. And, you mm-hmm. know, that's all that, that's great. I, you know, I'll never put down any author who wants to, to write in that space, but I was also just kind of thinking, like, my, I was looking at my own friendships. I was looking at, like, the friends of my friends and things like that. And there's not a lot of representation of a specific queer Black friendship out there, except for, like, a Noah's Ark. And then, like, you try to think of something beyond yeah. Noah's Ark. There's a lot of web series that kind of depict queer friendship. But, like, if you just, like I said, I'm a reader and I want to go to a bookstore. I want to do, what did Toni Morrison say? Like, the book you want to read, you have to write it. So, like, I wanted to... Mm have something that kind of spoke to a very specific kind of friendship where one, none of the friends are in love with each other because that's another big trope in terms of like, oh, I love my book. Yeah, like by the time you reach the end of the book, it's just like, oh my gosh, it's it's been you the whole time. It's like, that does not happen in real life. Happen in real life. That does not happen. (laughs) (laughs) But also, I mean, just there's conversations among Black gay men that just don't happen. I love my white friends to death but but it's just like there are the ways I level with with my black gay friends being not even like you know my black straight friends or even my female friends there are just things that we specifically Mm -hmm. talk about particularly kind of those struggles with like masculinity and stuff like that that just kind of exist in our own world that I really wanted to tap into I really appreciate that you shared that about feeling like there's a, a certain intimacy that you have with your Black gay male friends, because that's one of the things that also jumped out at me about this book. There is a certain intimacy that the friends have with each other. They don't have really with their, you know, boyfriends or partners or guys who they're dating. They don't have with their gay friends from other ethnic backgrounds. They don't have with their families or um, or any of their straight friends or anything like that. But it, it was interesting to see that juxtapose, like those like deep like family level relationships between the black gay men in the book contrasted with almost like as a response to or in reaction to racism within like the gay community at large. Talk to me about that kind of dichotomy between like having these fierce family bonds with other black gay men. And then on the opposite side of that, dealing with anti-black racism in, in large and small ways within the wider like gay community. If, if I were to kind of like survey a lot of the black gay men, I know They're either only children 
or they may have like one or two siblings and they're the only gay one. They have, you know, trouble, you know, coming out. It may be a very delayed process um, where a lot of black gay men my age, which I kind of allude to um, Mm -hmm. in terms of because like we also grew up in that like down low J.L. King era that did kind of like, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and so like we're like young, still very, very young, figuring ourselves out and do have this guy go on TV and says like, well, every every black dude got to watch out, got to watch out. And like the stigma that created for like our generation specifically, like we need to have like a that, and that's a whole panel discussion. But you know, uh, but but you know, there's the delayed coming out process. There's like the rejection that comes with coming out. There's like the you know, I'm not speaking to me personally. I'm just saying like of, among my circles and whatnot. You know, sure. there's there's not the complete 100 percent acceptance, especially among black households. And so your friends do become the family that you kind of yearn for. They don't judge you. There's no deep judgment, right? Like, you know, they, you may poke each poke fun at each other over, like, body counts and, and stuff, like the superficial stuff. But, like, they still love you at the end of the day. And so, you know, that found family that Black gay men tend to find among themselves, that's something that's almost a replacement or a substitute for the kind of family that they were yearning for through their blood family. It felt like the like the love that the characters had for each other, the love that the, the like the friendship between the black gay men in the book really served as a healthy counter to a lot of the racism, anti-black racism they were on the, you know, receiving end of in the wider gay community. Yeah, so that is something that I don't think we talk about enough among gay men at large. It's kind of like hinted at here and there. I'm thinking specifically of two things that are always in conversation among gay men, but Queer as Folk, the new one. Yeah. And I see what they were trying to do, but like I can also kind of see like, man, if there are some more Black people in this writer's room. like, like um, So, <laughs> you, you, you know, the, the new Queer as Folk starts off with a interracial hookup between a black man and a white man and the white man is like using his privilege as a kink he's just like punish me because i'm white or whatever punish me or whatever oh, oh punish my white ass oh. my ass takes up so much space it's so fucking privileged oh. let me pay reparations with my tight hole okay what? This dinner and get out loves the fuck up. Wait, this is at the beginning? This is the very beginning, like the opening oh, scene. Yeah. And he's got a Black Lives Matter <laughs> tattoo on the small of his oh, back. I'm just like, I see what you're trying to do. I'm see, I see you're trying to make fun of that <laughs> very particular kind of super duper woke white gay. But yeah. at the same time, I kind of cringe with that. You know, it's a minefield when it comes to dating outside of, of, of your race. Like, am I, like, what is it going to be this time? Are they going to fetishize this? Are they going to, you know, mm-hmm. overhype that? Those kind of conversations are the ones that we have to experience all the time. And it doesn't go away. It doesn't go away, which is what Remy is, like, dead set on. And he's like, unless I end up marrying and committing my life with another Black partner, then this, then this is what I have to deal with. So mm. just talking about that in the wider context and from our point of view specifically, mm-hmm. um, I think just kind of, you know, it's something we need to talk more about, I think. I'm glad you brought up some of the romantic aspects of things. Dealing with how Black men are perceived within the wider gay community fed into like a larger conversation that the book seemed to have between the characters 
about dating and monogamous romantic partnership, specifically uh, romantic partnership between two Black gay men. Like, even though the book doesn't focus on, like, finding love as, like, the point of the story, other characters still express anxiety over finding and keeping a man, but also anxiety of, like, overreaching the the ever-elusive status of hashtag relationship goals, which (laughs) comes up a few times (laughs) in the book. The characters are hopeful about romance, but they're kind of ambivalent too. And and it felt unique not to have romance being the driving factor of the story. Why was it important for you to sort of share those anxieties through the characters? First of all, I think our our generation was kind of indoctrinated by like <laughs> seeing Waiting to Exhale like way too early in all of those <laughs> movies. I mean, all not all of them, but like varying like, you know, like, oh, I got to find a man. I got to keep a man. Like, I didn't want the characters to like feel like their end goal was like getting a man right Mm -hmm. but i did kind of want to acknowledge that like you know this this is still gay gay or straight i i think there is sort of this unspoken expectation that like unless you have like kind of like what we perceive to be a full picture of a perfect life like a a strong partner a good job you know 2.5 kids house with the picket mm-hmm. fence or you know what some kind of like nice living like instagrammable thing then there's something missing and then like when you layer the black part on top of it and then layer the gay part on top of it it's just like you have all of these other things like that are kind of hindering that then then what does that mean so I talk in the book about, like, you know, getting all of this before you turn 35, because, like, I think there's two things there with Black people. It it feels like sometimes we kind of do put our pressure on ourselves to kind of, like, hit a certain milestone. Like, I got to get my PhD. Mm -hmm. I got to get a master's degree. I got to get all all of this. Otherwise, Mm -hmm. I'm going to look up and, like, oh, passing me by. And then, but with gay men, like... You know, thirty is already too old to be <laughs> to be gay. Like it's oh, like no. if you if you. I mean, seriously, talk to like the most like you know, in any kind of gay man who who's always just like, oh, I you know, thirty. That's when they start calling you daddy and and all of that type of stuff. And then like thirty five, like forget it. So dang, so dang. You, you got those two things kind of because like a lot of gay men feel like that they're in their prime in their twenties because like. You know, you can eat what you want and, and dress how you want and stuff like that. And then 30, like, there's kind of that, like, in that prejudice among gay men where it's just, like, 30 is old. Like, those, I mean, those two factors, like, the race and sexuality kind of adding onto the age part is, I, I think, is kind of a unique challenge for, for, for Black queer people. And then, like, that kind of longing to... You know, I feel like time is running out. Like, um, every time I go on Instagram, my 20th high school reunion was... Uh, this past weekend and I'm I didn't make it but I'm looking at like all of the people who brought their families to the reunion and all their kids are mm. playing in the bounce house and stuff like that and I'm sitting here with my cat and like I don't got <laughs> none of that as much as some gay men will try to deny it they do there is something there is kind of that longing to kind of share something um with with a partner and kind of build something with them which reminds me of another movie that indoctrinated us way too young Hmm. mahogany you know mahogany what did they say uh yes yes trust yes Diana Ross goes out. Tracy's all successful. She's yeah. known around the world. And then what? She feels lonely without a man. And then she ends up moving back to, with, moving back Chicago, Chicago for because Brian. What did, what did he say? What did he say? Success is nothing. 
without someone you love to share it with. I should not have seen that when I was eight years old. Like, we shouldn't have been exposed to that. <laughs> we should not have been exposed. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. So in the meantime, while the characters are, are trying to figure out where their romantic lives are going to end up, they have a lot of sex. And the book featured like all kinds of sex. And I love the fact that you were just as explicit about the sexy, fun parts of sex as like the cringeworthy, embarrassing parts. And it felt really realistic. Why was it important to show the full spectrum of what sex is really like? Two things. One is honest, right? It's honest, like you get a bunch of gay boys together and drinks start flowing and then we just start talking about like, (laughs) (laughs) like, girl, let me tell you about this one dude, he did this. And it sounds like, to me, it also kind of sounds like the conversations you're not supposed to hear among your parents and their friends when, when they get together, like, The other part of it, too, is when it comes to representation, you don't see a lot of Black queer sex. Again, it always goes back to Noah's Ark, which, uh, you know, it's the the list is very small. It's like Noah's Ark, Moonlight. Um, Black queer sexuality is, like, very limited, but... For non-black sexuality, you know, we do have like we have three versions of queerest folk. We, have, we, yeah. we, yeah. we, have, we you know, we have looking, we have fire. Fire Island is great because that gives the Asian perspective. But my one criticism, and I've been talking about this with other gay black men, so it's not just me, is that mm-hmm. the one gay black character in Fire Island has zero plot, zero storyline, contributes nothing. Yeah. And the and if you took him out of this out of the cast, or if you replaced him with like literally anybody else, you would not miss them because it just adds Mm. nothing. And that's not to take away from the larger overall message of Fire Island. But again, kind of like when me and and my peers are kind of like looking for our our stories, again, we're just kind of relegated to like Noah's Ark, Moonlight, Empire, and Empire didn't just center like Jesse's character. It was about the bigger thing, but you yeah, have to like, family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to like look and kind of pick out like, oh, that one on Brooklyn Nine Nine. You know, he's he's gay. Like, like, but like, but you always yeah. forget. You always forget. Yeah, you wanted to have a story where that was like where where sex and sexuality was the focus and not just like the feature of one side character. Yeah. You know, something else that I loved about the book that really touched me was the intergenerational exchange between Remy and his little cousin, Paris, who's like elementary school age. And Paris is coming into his own understanding of what it means to be gay as a little Black boy. And the interactions between Paris and Remy are some of the most tender moments of the book. Why did you choose to include the character of Paris and his relationship with Remy? That was quite honestly my favorite part because I've seen it happen in real life where a, a, a good, good, good friend of mine his nephew and around the same age started having those conversations very early. And, and um, I think about a couple of things that a young gay boy 
or young queer boy has that like our generation didn't. They have the internet, they have the whole world in their phone, and they also have like um, a lot of representation across the board, be it black or not, of just queer visibility that like we didn't have growing up. I wanted to kind of speak to how the world is kind of evolving for um, someone to come out or just kind of come into themselves at a much earlier age than, than what a lot of my peers still struggle with. You know, I I know a handful of, of queer people who still live very discreetly, right? Like the term, like mm. you look in dating apps and stuff like that, I'm discreet. Or if you talk to them one-on-one, it's just like, I prefer to kind of keep that side of, of me away from my family and my loved ones, mm-hmm. but I still kind of do out, go out and do this, this, and this. We did not have a Lil Nas X growing up. We did not have Glee or or any any of these like you know positive uh, queer portrayals. We had the question mark over Luther Vandross, and yeah. that was it. You know, we found like icons we could identify with that weren't gay men. Like mine was Diana Ross. I was like, why do I love Diana <laughs> Ross so much? Is it because I'm from Detroit? She's from Detroit? No, because she can dress and she can sing. Like you know, it's, it's always going to be like Diana Ross or Janet Jackson or, or something like that. You know, we 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 glom onto the divas, right? Um, but now you have the kids that are growing up who can say like, "Oh, he likes boys. I think I like boys too." You know, and and that's it. What's been the response to the book from Black Gay Men? I try to keep myself from crying when <laughs> when uh, somebody reaches out and says like, "Thank you. I see myself." Um, I've been waiting for this book. I, I, I think that that the, the, the I've been waiting for this is, is the one that gets me the most because like I've been waiting for it too. Like that's not to say that there aren't other black gay authors writing about black gay men. You know, mm-hmm. I want to shout out like Brian Washington. Like he um, Memorial and Lot are two fantastic works of fiction, Brandon Taylor, Robert Jones, who did The Prophets. But again, that list just kind of, you know, kind of slim. And, and mm. I, I know there are many authors who are probably wanting to write more about us and, and whatnot, but to kind of get the like, oh my gosh, I didn't know I needed to read this until I got it and, and, and stuff like that. That's been the most like touching reaction so far. Mm. You know, I want to pivot a little bit and talk about the fourth character of the book, The City of Detroit. This is a very Detroit book. (laughs) It's basically a love letter. There are so many references in this book that go unexplained, and I love it. The references to Dietrich Furs or father and son. Yeah. Little, oh, no jobs that. too big. Thank you. No jobs too small. <laughs> that was that was a deep cut specifically for us. Like, <laughs> that was, like I loved it. There were just so that so, almost got cut out. Like what? Yeah. No. Yeah. Um, I was like, listen, like this is a this is strictly for Detroiters. Like I understand it's a little bit wordy, but this is like specifically for. <laughs> Talk to me about your relationship to the city of Detroit and what the city means to you. I mean, it's just a city that I am super proud to be from from because, like, it's one, it's such an interesting and dynamic place that if you know, you know, like if you just it's, it, it takes a certain kind of upbringing, a certain kind of like immersion that you cannot get with a visit. You can't get from like a week in town. It's just like being exposed. So, you know, like the, the ex- example I always give is just like, you know, on Twitter, someone's always just like, when's the first time you had a black teacher? And everyone's really responding like, oh, 10th grade, 11th grade. And it's just like, I had black teachers from kindergarten 
all the way to senior year, right? Because that's mm-hmm. just how Detroit was. Like, but also just like being proud of like how, even though I live in New York now, cannot go anywhere without seeing some Detroit influence, whether it's like yep. Motown goes without saying, like people mm-hmm. are still, you know, there's a bunch of, especially here in Bedside where I'm at, like people walk up in like the older generation, like riding yep. their bikes with their boom boxes and blasting Motown, all that type of stuff. Like, you know, being the motor city that like, and, and, and putting the world on wheels, like we always say, and like even things like Little Caesars and Domino's, like all of that like Hello. started, started. Hello. And, yeah. <laughs> let know? people know, let people know. But yeah, I mean, just like Detroit being everywhere. And like, if I wear like an old English D fitted here in New York, which I'm not afraid to do, I do get, I get questions (laughs) about Detroit about like, what, what, you know, what's it like? Do you know this? Do you know this? Everybody knows Detroit. Everybody has this curiosity about it, but you don't always get like that point of view from, of someone who's from there. Right. So Mm -hmm. um, this was just kind of like my small contribution to the canon of, of Detroit. I'm really glad that you wrote it because in pop culture, many stories that feature Black people in general, let alone Black gay men, but also specifically Black gay men, most of the stories around Black gay men show them living on the coasts. Yeah, yeah. Or in Atlanta. And Black people in general, if they make any stories about Black people in general in pop culture, if they're in the Midwest, they're in Chicago. Yeah. And they act like Chicago's the only popping city in the Midwest. Yeah. Why was it important to you that this book about Black gay men be set in gentrifying Detroit? I think there's something to be said about like the intersection of Detroit itself and how it shapes the the people that grow up there and, and live there. And what are some of the things that we do in Detroit that do not happen in Atlanta, do not happen in D.C., do not happen in Harlem Mm -hmm. or even in West Hollywood? And I look at, like, the gay bars, right? Like, um, we're all Black gay Mm -hmm. men frequent. And they're not always playing that, like, West Hollywood EDM dancey type of thing, nor are they doing, (laughs) like, the more Atlanta or D.C., like, R&B type vibe. They're playing, like street music like they're playing like all of these new rappers coming out of detroit like a t mm-hmm. grizzly or or something like that cash a cash dog like goes yeah. off <laughs> in the detroit gay bar but also just like the tamia hustle for folks who don't know yes in, in detroit we love a line dance it's called a line dance or an electric slide <laughs> everywhere else i'll give it that but in detroit we call it the hustle and it's we like do. you know like at the end of the best man closing credits when they're doing um the electric slide, like we do that specifically to "My Eyes Don't Cry" and by Stevie Wonder. Yeah, by Stevie Wonder, or we do um, mm-hmm. "Feel So Right" by Janet Jackson. Um, yep. And now this like new, more complicated line dance, the Tamia Hustle, is done to Tamia song "Can't Get Enough." Which was a mild hit like on R&B a couple of years ago but then it had this local resurgence when I don't know who came up with the hustle but the first time I saw somebody doing it was black gay men doing it in mm-hmm. a club a couple of years ago next thing you know like the whole city is doing it it's traveled to a couple of other places you don't see people doing that in New York or, or the coast you know, I can't talk about gay black Detroit without talking about one of the most important settings in in the story, this bar called The Woodward, where your characters meet and chat and fight and bicker and mingle and 
get drunk and <laughs> decamp for <laughs> D1 Coney Island. That, that was one of the most important locations in the, in the book, but it was also uh, it's also one of the most important locations in Black Gay Detroit. It's perhaps Detroit's most legendary gay bar, I believe is the oldest operating uh, gay bar period in, in Detroit. Uh, it's called The Woodward and, and it caught fire and burned down. On Twitter, you said that The Woodward is just as much Black Detroit history as it is queer Detroit history. Unfortunately, I never had the pleasure of going to the Woodward. I always meant to go and I never ended up going. But even I knew about the significance of the place. But as I was really falling in love with your book and finishing it up, it was it felt eerie to me as a reader. And so I, I want to hear from you as the author and as somebody who had so much affection for this place. Talk to me a bit about the significance of the Woodward, what it meant to you, and and how big of a loss the destruction of this bar is. Yeah, I mean, incalculable, monumental loss, right? Like, the Woodward was one of those places that you would never think it would go away, right? And so when it caught fire, I was just, like, kind of stunned in disbelief. I was just like, are you serious right now? Because, you know, and because it is such a community, family space, I mean, yes, it's a gay bar. There are many gay bars, especially here in here in New York. You know, they do kind of get discarded as just like just another bar, just another place to dance and hook up or or whatever. But specifically speaking to Detroit, there's not a lot of spaces for Black queer people to kind of gather safely, gather as community. You'd be remiss not to mention that it did have its issues. I mean, sometimes it gets a little rowdy there. Sometimes people fight. Sometimes, you know, out in the parking lot or off on the side street, people do have a lot of gun and and, and fire a few shots in the air. You'd be remiss not to, to mention the, you know, sometimes negative parts about it. It was messy, but it was our mess. And with it being gone, I think the owner did say he was going to try to rebuild, but if he doesn't, or if it just kind of stays empty, then you do lose a key part of, like I said, not just gay history, but but Black history. It was the place where, uh, you know, Fridays and Saturdays, the young people, 20s and 30s would go. But like throughout the day, you know, that is where the older 45 and up crowd went. And a lot of those folks in there uh, didn't always have families to go back to or didn't always, you know, weren't always accepted, you know, by the folks around them and, and stuff like that. So that was their space. Uh, and so I just, I don't know what's next. But one thing I know about Detroit is like, anytime they try to open like a new gay bar, it doesn't last for very long. <laughs> you know, there's, there's, there's something to be said about that as well, about, about like trying to create new spaces. But the old ones, you know, the old ones like the Hayloft, Menjo's, and, and the Woodward will always be a standby. And now you're missing a crucial key standby that was, you know, home for a lot of, a lot of Black queer people. This book is really personal on a lot of levels. So I, I'm wondering, you know, as a, as a last question, like how has writing this book and putting it out and, and getting the response from it, how has it like changed you? That's a good question. Being a journalist first, you know, you put something out there as a, a writer or some, or someone that edited and it, you know, it's, it's fact. Like, you know, there's research that goes in reporting that goes into it and it's, and it's inarguable. But now that I have something a little bit more personal out there, I'm still kind of figuring out how to feel, uh, <laughs> I guess, <laughs> because the kind of what I've been thinking is that 
I want with this book for people to learn about Detroit and learn about some black gay men, not all of them, because there's always that burden of representation. But, you know, I mean, I, I think there's the commonality between fiction and journalism is that they both seek to educate and inform the reader. And so I, I, I lean into that. You know, this is something I wanted to read for myself. And so I just had to do it. I just had to do it. If people like it, I'm, I'm, I feel like job well done. I, I did my goal and reached my goal in, in, in educating and entertainment entertaining if people don't like it then fine i'll try again you know (laughs) like but yeah i'm still kind of reconciling exactly how to feel Uh, whatever you write next i'm ready to read it aaron thank you so much for joining us today this was so much fun i love reading the book i highly encourage everybody to pick it up look when you write another one you let me know because we will have to chat because this one was too good. Absolutely. Thank you, Brittany. I love you guys so much. I'm like, oh my gosh, I almost forgot. <laughs> <laughs> like, I am a fan and they got me on here and I'm trying not oh, to be. Thank <laughs> you. Thank you so much. For Colored Nerds was created by me, Eric Eddings, and Brittany Luce. It's supported by a production team at Stitcher, including producer Alexis Williams, story editor Gianna Palmer, social producer Elise Ellis, and engineer Marcus Hom. Our theme music is by Willie Green. And look, y'all, we love hearing from you so, so much. So please shout us out on Instagram at For Colored Nerds, on Twitter at For Colored Nerds. You can find us everywhere at For Colored Nerds. And tell your friends, too. We love it also when we're like, yo, my homie, cousin, best friend, told me to listen to this episode and it was bomb and then I subscribed that's like my favorite song so please do your do your friend do your community a favor and share an episode and tell us which one it was Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply.